guy said, you need to become a Christian so that you can go to heaven. And I said, that sounds like a good plan. Uh, I believed in my four-year-old mind what John 3.16 says, that God so loved the world that his son came, and uh, whoever believes in him can have everlasting life. And so I gave my life to Jesus, and I was saved uh, for eternity, but I was saved for, from the damage that I think the separation of parents could have done in me. When I was nine years old, those same parents of mine had a custody battle, and it was the most stressful time still in my life. I think one of the reasons I deal with stress the way I do today is because I've I've been the most stressed when I was just a nine-year-old. So bad one day that I remember being doubled up on the floor in the bathroom, uh, not sick in any type of way that I normally experience, that you normally experience, just sickness from such stress and being pulled in different directions and trying to navigate uh, a a parent-child relationship while saying things that that parent wasn't going to like. And at that time, when I would go to school every day, my great-grandma taught me a verse, uh, two verses, a passage, Psalms 94, 18 and 19. It says, when I feel my foot slipping, your faithfulness, O Lord, supports me. When I am filled with cares, your reassurance soothes my soul. And as a nine-year-old, I knew that Jesus had saved me, but I learned then that not only did Jesus save me, but he also protected me. He helped me. He was there for me. And I think that I got through those days because I knew that my foot was slipping, but I also knew that God was going to save me somehow. And when I was 17 years old, after going through all the high school stuff, I came to the realization that I wasn't really living for Jesus. I was living for myself. And I had this night where I grasped for the first time what I had believed when I was four years old, that Jesus had died for me. And it didn't make sense because I looked at my life and I was like, I am a bad person. I mean, I wasn't bad in any of the like, I was in prison or doing drugs or anything like that, but I'm like a bad person. And yet Jesus died for all of that. And and the fact that he would die for a wretched person like me is absolutely incredible. And I remember at that time singing, I could sing of your love forever. It came out on a Sonic Flood album about when I was 17 or so. And man alive, I didn't just mean like I could sing of your love forever and eternity. I just realized like I could literally just sing of God's love forever because of the incredible grace that he has bestowed upon me. Isaiah 53, five and six talks about how uh, Jesus was wounded for our transgressions and he was chastised for our iniquity and he was bruised for our uh, affirmities, for our sins. And when I was 17, I got it. Like Jesus was literally whipped and tortured because I do these things that I do. In college, I had this bad romantic relationship and it really, uh, it really could have ruined, derailed everything that I'm doing today, everything that I wanted to be about in my life from the time I was 17 years old. It could have just totally derailed it, and it it did uh, move it on a different track for a long time. Uh, It threatened to ruin friendships, and it threatened to leave me completely broken with an inability to forgive and a bitter heart. 
And yet, despite all that I did wrong in that relationship, God somehow, and, and I don't even, can't even explain this or fathom this, but somehow I came out of that as a stronger, more passionate, better follower of Jesus, despite me. Uh, Romans 8, 28 says that God uses everything for the good of those who love him, and I have proven that true over and over because I do lots of stuff wrong, and I have dealt with a lot of bad stuff, and yet God has brought me out of it better than before, and it's a testimony to his grace. Right after college, I started uh, looking for jobs, as people do, and uh, I was going to take a marketing job, and uh, it was a job that I was completely underqualified for, but as with all jobs, it seems, in the world today, I knew somebody, and it was going to be a cool job that uh, most young men would like, and I was talking to an ex-girlfriend that was still a friend, not the one from college, uh, and she said these words that are forever etched into my brain. Uh, the Chad I knew never would have taken a year off from ministry to make money. She wasn't even trying to be profound, but she spoke the word of God to me. And about a day later, I was on the Corbin, my college's website, looking for ministry jobs, and I found this little church called Creekside Bible Church that was looking for a 15-hour-a-week youth pastor, uh, and I filled out an application and was working here about a month and a half later, and I met my wife here, and I haven't left, uh, haven't been kicked out either, so that's good, uh, and I just see that God has directed my steps. Not that he has made me go a certain direction because I have at many points turned away from him, but that despite me, in spite of me, he has guided me to the point where I have a beautiful wife that I never would have picked for myself, but am so thankful that God put her into my life. I have a church that I love tremendously, and it's all because of him. We're doing this series on witnessing, and we've talked about proclamation and service and prophecy and power encounters and invitation and reason and the importance of all those. And today I want to talk about one that is the easiest, but perhaps the most effective witnessing technique, and that's testimony. I just gave you mine. I just told you my story and how that story intersects with the story of God. That's how I would define testimony, but sometimes simply sharing our testimony seems like the easy way out. It seems like the way that we want to go about witnessing because maybe we don't feel like we have the answers. But in the story we're going to look at today, Paul, we introduced him last week and I think the week before, a guy that is driven by reason and logic a guy who writes just about better than anybody that you'll ever read. Go pick up the New Testament, you'll see that. A guy who was incredibly intelligent and highly educated and well-respected for his ability to think, who was able to witness to the Athenians through reasoning in a way that was profound, so profound that we can still copy it. That's what we talked about last week. And yet in this story uh, today that we will look at, he chooses to use his own personal testimony as the witnessing tool 
in front of these high-powered men. And the reality is that sometimes the best thing we can do to be a witness of Jesus is simply to tell people the story about how Jesus has worked in our lives. The situation is this. Paul has been arrested, and he's been in jail for a long while, and he's meeting with a guy named Festus, and he appeals to Caesar. He basically says, look, I'm a Roman citizen, and I want to go to Rome, and I want to stand trial in front of uh, the king, the guy that's in charge of everything. And so he does that, but it doesn't really happen for a while, and he's just kind of sitting in jail. And there's this guy named Festus who is now over Paul, and he doesn't really know what to do with him. He doesn't know how to deal with this guy who's kind of in jail for no reason, but if you let him out and the Jewish people are going to be mad. And when the Jewish people would get mad at the Romans, it would cause riots and all kinds of problems. And so it's kind of this political prisoner of sorts while being a spiritual prisoner. And so it's just like, what do we do? And so uh, this guy named Agrippa, King Agrippa, is coming through town. And, and Festus says, hey, I'd like to introduce you to this guy named Paul and let you hear what he has to say. So that's the situation. And, and here's what we read in Acts 26, starting in verse 1. Then Agrippa said to Paul, you have permission to speak for yourself. Now what follows this is perhaps, this is not according to me, this is according to uh, other smart people, it's perhaps the most important Pauline speech in the entire book of Acts. And it is in some ways a Christological, that means the study of Christ, a summary for Luke in the book of Acts. And the weird part is, it's not driven by reason and logic, it's driven by Paul's testimony. Just consider that. Perhaps the most important sermon that is recorded for us by the Apostle Paul, perhaps the most influential person in the history of Christianity except for Jesus, and it's driven by his testimony. And here's what we read. So Paul motioned with his hand. And he began his defense. King Agrippa, I consider myself fortunate to stand before you today as I make my defense against all the accusations of the Jews, and especially so because you are well acquainted with all the Jewish customs and controversies. Therefore, I beg you to listen to me patiently. Ben Witherington III, who I quoted a lot last week, said, the form of the speech is determined by the social context. And you can notice this primarily in the way that Paul uses flattery. Last week I said when he was standing in front of the ruling council in Athens that he didn't use flattery at all. In fact, if you were here last week and you remember the passage, he really begins by saying, hey, let me tell you what you're ignorant about. Because those people didn't like flattery. They were driven by logic and reason. But here, standing before King Agrippa, Paul launches into the, the flattery, the niceness, the, hey, he's buttering him up. You know, like, it is so good to be able to stand before you, most excellent Agrippa, and especially you, because you have an understanding of the things that I am talking about. And the other way that we see it is that Paul doesn't launch into an apologetics argument defending Christianity. He launches into his story and how that story intersects with the story of God. And here's what I want you to know. Sometimes you'll need to reason with people. But more often, you need to share your testimony with people. 
And this is what we see in Paul's grand Christological speech in the book of Acts. The story continues, and this is Paul talking. The Jewish people all know the way I lived ever since I was a child. From the beginning of my life in my own country and also in Jerusalem, They have known me for a long time and can testify if they are willing that I conform to the strictest sect of our religion, living as a Pharisee, and now it is because of my hope and what God has promised our ancestors that I am on trial today. This is the promise our 12 tribes are hoping to see fulfilled as they earnestly serve God day and night. King Agrippa, it is because of this hope that these Jews are accusing me. Why should any of you consider it incredible that God raises the dead? Now, here's the interesting part to me of this, this whole passage. Paul is not on trial here, but I'm sure that he feels like he is on trial. He is waiting to go and stand before Caesar. He's locked up in a jail. King Agrippa is just brought in so that they can kind of bounce ideas with each other. Like, what do we do with this guy? You know, what do we do while he's waiting for his trial in Rome with Caesar? But Paul has to feel like he's on trial. He's brought between these high, high ruling officials, King Agrippa and Festus. And he's standing there with an audience of Big time people. They're like the top of the top. Politically, authority wise, they're the top of the top. And what's so interesting about that is that Paul does not act as a defendant, but instead as a witness. And the truth is, if you are going to be a good witness, if you are going to do a good job of telling people about Jesus, then you must stop being the defendant. And start focusing on being a witness. You know that this is what happens, right? You don't share the gospel of Jesus with people because you are more concerned about guarding yourself than you are about telling others about Jesus. And what you must remember, that if you're going to be a good witness and in your testimony... You should testify, not defend. There's a big difference there. In one, I am demonstrating, I am explaining, I am talking about what I have seen Jesus do in me. In the other, I'm saying, look, you know, the reason I'm a moral person is because I believe these things and, you know, I don't want to be offensive. You're defending yourself. And I think we mix the two up and say, well, I'm, I'm a witness When all we're really doing is being a defendant. I would explain it this way, and I don't know how I ended up uh, watching this video, but I was working on a sermon. But I ended up watching a video where Oprah is interviewing Mark Furman. Uh, Who remembers Mark Furman without me explaining? Mark Furman was the lead detective on the O.J. Simpson trial, And he is now most famous for really messing that trial up because in the middle of the trial, the defense shifted their focus and and turned it to him instead of on OJ and had a tape where he was saying racist things using very offensive racial slurs. What happened in that trial was that at some point... Mark Furman lost his ability to be a witness because he was so caught up in defending himself. 
In fact, there's a point, uh, and you can see this video on YouTube if you want to, and some of you will remember this like it's yesterday, where he is brought back up on the stage, and they ask him a series of questions. And he says in response to those questions, I would like to exercise my right to the Fifth Amendment, which is the right to not incriminate yourself while you're on the stand. And they ask him a couple of questions uh, that you know, are, are kind of inconsequential. And he says, I would like to uh, use my right in the Fifth Amendment. I would like to exercise my right in the Fifth Amendment. And the, process, or the defending attorney looks at him and goes, are you going to answer that to every one of the questions? And he turns to his lawyer and the lawyer advises him and he says, I would, yes, I would like to exercise my Fifth Amendment. So the lawyer looks down at his paper kind of reads a question, looks up and says, did you plant any incriminating evidence in this case? And Mark Furman looks and goes, I would like to exercise my Fifth Amendment. What happens? Everybody on that jury thinks all of a sudden that Mark Furman has planted incriminating evidence against O.J. Simpson. When he sits in front of Oprah and he tells the story, he says, no, I didn't plant any incriminating evidence. And when he tells the story of what he saw when he first arrived and how difficult it would have been to plant any evidence, you're like, yeah, there's it's seemingly no way that this man could have planted. You might remember the glove. I brought a glove. I actually have a glove that looks just like the O.J. Simpson glove, but I couldn't find it this week. Like, literally looks like the O.J. Simpson glove. But you might remember that, that a big part of the trial was, was the O.J. Simpson glove, not the end where they said, if it doesn't fit, you must acquit that part where O.J.'s stretching out his hand and, you know, it, the glove won't go on. But the other part, that they found the second glove and that they said Mark Furman must have planted that glove because he's a racist and he had a... Uh, a vendetta against O.J. Simpson. And when you listen to Mark Furman actually testify, it's like, no, those things don't sound true. But when he was on the stand, he could no longer be a witness because he was so wrapped up in defending himself and, and he really cost the prosecution the trial. And I think what happens for us is that we are so paranoid that people won't like us, that people will think we're weird, that people won't understand, that we spend all of our times being a defendant, and therefore we cannot be a good witness of what Jesus has done. And you must remember that if you are going to give your testimony, then you must testify, not defend yourself. Now, there's this other thing that Paul does in this testimony, and that is that he weaves Scripture into it. And when I gave you my testimony at the beginning, I tried to do that. Uh, I've always tried to do that, but when I see it in Paul, I, I'm reminded of the importance of that. You may not quote Scripture. We talked about this last week. If you're talking to a, a person that is far from believing the Bible, that they have no interest in what Scripture has to say, then you would never want to say Isaiah 53, 5 and 6 says... But you would be like Paul here, who just weaves scripture through his story. And here's what I want you to hear. We're going to put it up on the screen, I believe. It's this. Your story plus God's story equals testimony. You can't just tell your story and say, I'm being a witness. Anybody can tell their story. You don't even have to be a Christian to tell your story. But when you tell your story 
and it's wrapped up in the story of God, that's when your testimony is coming out. That's when you're being a witness to Jesus. That's when you're testifying. Now, here's the other part. Paul says that he was living as a Pharisee. And in Greek, this is more clearly past tense. It's in the aorist form of Greek. And that's important because Paul says, I'm different now. I lived as a Pharisee, but I no longer live in this way. You know who I was, he says to these people. They know what I was like, but I am no longer that way. And he's going to explain why in a second. But here's the reality. If your testimony is going to hold any weight at all, you don't need to be perfect, but you do need to be changed. If people look at your life and there is no difference before you had an encounter with Jesus and after, then your testimony will have zero validity. It won't matter. People will not believe your testimony if you have not been changed. When I was 17 and I realized that grace of God so powerfully, I was literally referred to as my old ways were literally referred to as old Chad. I've said this before in a sermon, but people said to me, I miss the old Chad. There was a difference. It was pretty drastic in my case. It may not be as drastic in your case, but there was a big difference primarily in my language. It just changed. And I understand that the growth, the growth in the Christian process in Christianity can be long and it can be difficult and all of that, but, but honestly, the reality is when you encounter the resurrected Savior, there will be a difference and it will be immediate. You will not be perfect, but you will be changed and your testimony will have no validity if you're not. Paul continues, I too was convinced that I ought to do all that was possible to oppose the name of Jesus of Nazareth. And that is just what I did in Jerusalem. On the authority of the chief priests, I put many of the Lord's people in prison. And when they were put to death, I cast my vote against them. Many a time I went from one synagogue to the other to have them punished. And I tried to force them to blasphemy. I was so obsessed with persecuting them that I even hunted them down in foreign cities. On one of these journeys, I was going to Damascus with the authority and commission of the chief priests about noon, King Agrippa. As I was on the road, I saw a light from heaven brighter than the sun blazing around me and my companions. We all fell to the ground and I heard a voice saying to me in Aramaic, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? It is hard for you to kick against the goads. Then I asked, who are you, Lord? I am Jesus whom you are persecuting, the Lord replied. Now get up and stand on your feet. I have appeared to you to appoint you as a servant and as a witness of what you have seen and what you will see of me. I will rescue you from your own people and from the Gentiles. I am sending you to them to open their eyes and turn them from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God so that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. Paul says a lot here. He tells his story. It's a common story by this time in Acts, if you're reading the book of Acts. And you should go back and you should read it. And it's a great story about how Paul becomes a Christian. But I want to point out a couple of things. And the first is that Paul says that he cast his vote against Christians. 
The literal language there is that he cast his pebble against them. And it may not be, or it may be a pun, but we can't help but see the connection to what we know about Paul. And the first time that you see Paul introduced in the book of Acts by Luke, the author of the book of Acts, Paul is a young man who is holding the coats of the people who are throwing stones at a kid named Stephen who becomes the first Christian martyr. He is literally holding jackets so that people can throw rocks and kill a Christian. And there's no way that we can read that and not make a connection. It's as if Paul, without going into the gory details of the way he has hunted down Christians, says, I want to make clear that I am not bragging about the way that I used to be. It was dark and it was evil. And then I encountered Jesus. Paul tells us two things. One, that I was doing my best to serve God. I was a Pharisee that was strict. And two, I did evil things that I'll regret for the rest of my life. And what we see is that Paul does not sugarcoat, does not alter his story. He tells it in truth and openness. Your testimony doesn't need to be filled with crazy behaviors. It needs to be real, and it needs to be open, and it needs to be honest. I think one of the problems that we encounter with sharing our testimony is that we feel a need to defend ourselves. Whether we're defending that we used to be legalistic and we lived a great life, but then we encountered Jesus and realized we were never good enough, or whether we have dark, deep things that we don't like to share with others, we need to be willing to share those things so that others can see that Jesus made a real impact in our lives. I wrote it down this way. I know it's corny. You don't have to tell me, but it will help you remember. Don't make your testimony phony. It's pretty simple, right? I mean, when you tell it, it cannot be a phony testimony. You can't make yourself look better or worse than you really were. You just need to share your story and how that story connects to the story of God. I like what Teddy Bridgewater, who's the Vikings quarterback in the NFL, uh, he tore out his knee this week, and he, he said this, in order to have a testimony, you have to have a test. My faith is strong. My faith is unwavering. I liked that. Don't be afraid to share the tests that you have had in your life because they factor into you having a testimony. Here's the other thing I want you to know. There's no good way for these people to argue against what Paul has just said. He tells this story about seeing a bright vision Something that a lot of people may not have liked, but the Roman people were really interested in visions and things like that, and they thought you should pay close attention to them. And so Paul, he tells his story, and I want you to pay attention to this too, he tells his story in a way that would have connected with his audience. And when you give your testimony, you ought to give it in a way that connects with your audience. If you're talking to a person that is going through a divorce, talk about how divorce is connected with you. 
I did a divorce recovery class. I taught a divorce recovery class at the age of like 20. It was a slightly weird environment for me to be in. I had never been divorced before. But you know what those people, and it was open to Christians and non-Christians alike, you know what those people wanted to hear about? They wanted to hear about how I hadn't been destroyed by my parents' divorce because they had kids. And they're thinking, I have completely messed up my children's lives. For me, it was like, This is the time when I say I come from a divorced home, but my faith in Jesus has allowed me to be who I am despite that. But if you're talking to somebody who has just come out of a relationship where they felt like they had been lied to and they were going to struggle with trust forever, then I would share that part of my story. I found forgiveness in my heart because I realized how much Jesus had forgiven me. Paul tailors this story to his audience, and we must do that too while not making our testimony phony. And in that, there's nothing they can say. What are they going to say to Paul when he gets to the end of this? No, you didn't see it. And what's Paul going to say? Yes, I did. And they're going to say, no, you didn't. And Paul's going to go, I'm telling you, I did. Nobody can create a good argument against your testimony. It's one of the reasons that it's one of the best, most effective ways to be a witness to Jesus. I'll even give you what they would have said to Paul because I heard this on NPR a week or so ago. On NPR recently, they said that if you push on certain parts of the brain, and this can happen through stress or other things that might be going on in our lives, this certain part of our brain will, will you know, swell up or whatever, then it can actually cause you to see visions and things like angels. This would be the argument they'd give to Paul. And then Paul would say, how do you know you're seeing me? You know, I mean, if we're going to leave all experience up to something being wrong in our brains, then none of us can prove anything. But if we're actually going to believe the things that we can see, touch, smell, hear, then our testimonies cannot be argued with. It's like this, like, hey, the Holy Spirit moved so powerfully in my life one night that out of nowhere I was bawling, crying on the ground because I realized how much of a sinner I was. No, he didn't. Yeah, he did. I was there and you weren't there. That's it. And I believe that our testimonies are important. And and one of the reasons, and I prayed this earlier, that God gave us the responsibility of sharing him with others is because it's really difficult for people to argue with the experiences we have had with Jesus. Just tell people. Now, there's this other thing that Paul says. Paul says that God is helping him even to this day he he seems to be saying that God has moved in him uh, even to the point in which he is at right now standing before them and preaching the gospel he talks about what Jesus says that that Jesus uh, tells him that that he would be freed that people would be freed from the power of Satan that they would receive forgiveness of sins and that they are sanctified He shows them that Jesus told him to declare, not that just that Jesus would get you into heaven, but that Jesus makes an impact on your life now. And I think that's important because your testimony should not just include what Jesus will do for you someday when you get to heaven. 
Most people don't care. Your testimony should include what God has done, is doing, and will do in your life. And I'll just say this. If you can't identify what God has done in your life and what God is doing in your life, then you need to meditate on that. You need to like go away in a room and get away from a TV and a cell phone and get away from people and just sit there and be like, God, what have you done for me? And what are you doing for me? Because I'm not paying close enough attention. Paul continues, so then King Agrippa, I was not disobedient to the vision from heaven, first to those in Damascus, then to those in Jerusalem and all Judea, and then to the Gentiles. I preached that they should repent and turn to God and demonstrate their repentance by their deeds. This is why some Jews seized me in the temple courts and tried to kill me. But God has helped me to this very day, so I stand here and testify to small and great alike. I am saying nothing beyond what the prophets and Moses said would happen, that the Messiah would suffer and as the first to rise from the dead, would bring the message of light to his own people and to the Gentiles. Notice again that Paul is testifying. He's witnessing. He's not defending himself. And he again points out that God is helping him now. His testimony includes not only what God will do, but what God has done and is doing. And then, as we saw last week, he makes the resurrection of Jesus the very center point of his witnessing efforts. You think, well, if I just tell people my testimony, then it won't have to include the hard, weird stuff that we believe as Christians, the things that are going to rub people wrong. But Paul shows us that's not true. He shows us that even if we're giving our testimony, if that's the witnessing tool that we are using, that it still must be centered around, driven by the fact that Jesus got out of the grave. The resurrection is central to our testimony and the resurrection does this incredible thing and it's why we have to bring it up every time we witness. It's that it forces people to make a decision about Jesus. They can either disbelieve that Jesus got out of the grave and I believe that if you disbelieve that then you are disbelieving logic and reason and evidence. Or you can reject Jesus anyway, but you must now reject him as the Lord and Savior of the universe. No regular human being has ever got out of the grave without God moving in some unique and powerful way. And so you must look at Jesus and go, yeah, okay, you got out of the grave. That means that you are almighty, all-powerful, but I reject you anyway. Or the resurrection causes us to say, if you got out of the grave and you did that so that I might have my sins removed, I will give you my life. We include the resurrection in all of our witnessing efforts because it is the defining decision maker of Christianity. We look at the resurrection, say, I believe it and I'll give you my life. Or we look at it and say, uh-uh, not happening, Jesus. When we give our testimony, our testimony should include that Jesus got out of the grave. And it's not that hard to include that, right? Because everything that you've encountered with Jesus, you've encountered because he's no longer dead. If you've ever felt Jesus move in your life, if the kindness of Jesus led you to repentance, if you've ever experienced the feeling of forgiveness and peace despite all that you have done wrong, if you've ever experienced the help of Jesus in your life when things seem terrible, it's because he's not dead. 
So when you're telling your story, you don't just say, yeah, Jesus helped me. You say, look, Jesus got out of the grave. And so I can face tomorrow despite tomorrow not looking that great. At this point, Festus interrupted Paul's defense. You are out of your mind, Paul, he shouted. Your great learning is driving you insane. And I want to say this, our witnessing will not always be received well, even, even, even if it's our testimony. Don't think that just because you share your story, people aren't going to say, you've gone crazy. There's no way that the Holy Spirit, you could actually feel that. You're nuts. It's going to happen. Paul responds, I'm not insane, most excellent Festus. Paul replied, what I am saying is true and reasonable. The king is familiar with these things and I can speak freely to him. I am convinced that none of this has escaped his notice because it was not done in a corner. King Agrippa, do you believe the prophets? I know you do. Paul again says, this is a reasonable thing to believe. And I want to say again that while faith takes a leap of faith, it isn't void of reason and logic. Paul says, in fact, hey, King Agrippa, these things were not done in a corner, man. You've at least heard rumors about the miracles Jesus did. You've at least heard rumors that he got out of the grave and appeared to a lot of people. I know that you weren't living in some isolated part of the world where you didn't hear about this. And I'd say to the person who calls you insane, like, hey, if you really think I'm insane, let me point you to some evidence. If you really think I'm crazy, let me get you a book. And if you really think I'm crazy, then you got to think that, you know, 75% of our world is crazy or some highly nutso number. I mean, if I'm crazy, a lot of people are crazy. There may not be a good response, but there is good proof for Jesus. Paul says, look, you know, King Agrippa, you know. And here's the other thing. He puts Agrippa in this cool corner. Uh, King Agrippa was a Jewish person. And so he looks at him and says, you believe the prophets, don't you? And there's two answers to that, yes or no. If he says yes, then now he has to follow the line of Paul. If he says no, then he becomes a bad Jew. And he doesn't want to do that. Now, Paul gives him the easy out here. I know you do. I know you do. And I just think of examples of how this could work as we share our testimony. Like, you believe in God, right? So if you believe in God, it makes sense that I could have experienced God's movement in my life. How about this? You believe it was bad when, fill in the blank, whatever happened. So if that is bad, then what I did was bad too. And I needed forgiveness. Or how about this? You believe Hitler did evil? Nobody will ever disagree with that. That's like, if you ever want to win an argument, just bring in Hitler somehow and make it sound like he's, uh, it's working for your side. You believe Hitler did evil, right? Well, yeah, of course I believe that. Everybody's going to say, yeah, of course I believe that. So if evil exists, then you can recognize that something has to be done about that evil. It's not that hard to find something that all people agree upon. And Paul uses that in his testimony. And here's how he responds. And if this is your heart, you'll be a great witness. If it's not, then you'll never be a great witness. He says, then King, oh, then King Agrippa said to Paul, sorry, before that, do you think in such a short time you can persuade me to be a Christian? Paul replied, short time or long, 
I pray to God that not only you, but all who are listening to me today may become what I am except for these chains. Agrippa practices what somebody called sophisticated avoidance by a slightly embarrassed king. He's like, ooh, backed into a corner. How do I get out of this? Do you think really your short sermon's going to work, Paul? Paul's sermon here is not well received. Nobody becomes a Christian from it. But the cool thing is, as Ben Witherington III also points out, and if you're wondering why I'm quoting him so much, he actually writes a book. Uh, His commentaries are called the rhetorical commentary on whatever. So he's all about the language and, and how speeches go together. And so he was a great resource for these sermons and Paul's speeches. He says, Luke does not see this as a universal tragedy that people reject Paul. For some Jews continue to respond, and he seems to believe Christians should continue to approach them. The response to Paul is not great. But the author, Luke, is not saying, look, bad response, don't do this anymore. He's saying bad response, keep doing it. And in Paul's response, we see the heart that it takes to keep going. Short time or long, I want everybody to know Jesus. And I just wonder if that's true for us. If it doesn't work the first time, do you just give up? Do you say, God, lead them to Jesus and you don't see a response? Do you go, well, good enough, I gave my best effort. If you invited them to church last year and they said no, did you invite them to church again? If you tried to reason with them once but you lost the argument, did you try reasoning with them again? If you served them but the topic of Jesus never came up, did you serve them again? If you messed up on a power encounter and you missed the opportunity to talk to somebody, did you never talk to them again? Paul's like, look, yeah, this was short. You may respond, but the reality is I want all people to become Christians. And my hope for us is that we want all people to become Christians and that we will be willing to share our testimonies because that's what we want. We will not share our testimonies if we don't care that people won't become Jesus. We will not invite others. We will not embrace our power encounters. We will not serve others. We will not proclaim Jesus when it needs to be proclaimed. We will not be witnesses if our hope and our aim in life is to lead everybody to Jesus. The hope of my hope for this church is that we will lead every person to Jesus. I mean, I want us to be able to proclaim the gospel in every single country on this planet someday. I want every person to not have an excuse when they get to uh, the throne of God someday and they have to look at him. No excuse for not accepting him. No excuse where they say, Jesus, I just didn't know about you. Because I want us to be such incredible witnesses that everybody knows what Jesus is about. And they were presented that story of Jesus in the best way possible following one of the models that we've seen in Acts. But it has to start with us wanting nothing more than to lead people to Jesus, to be witnesses of him. There's this great story in John 4. It's the story you know as the woman at the well. Jesus there encounters a Sumerian woman, and he talks to her, somebody... in cultural norms, he would never have talked to at all. And Jesus talks to this woman. I'm going to make a long, beautiful story, just short and succinct to, to prove uh, 
that witnessing is important and testimony is important. He tells her everything that she's done wrong. And the woman is so impressed with Jesus that she goes back into her city and she looks at them and says, the people everywhere apparently, she's like, I have encountered a man that has told me all of my sins, everything I've done. Could he be the Messiah? And then John tells us, because of the woman's testimony, many believed in Jesus. This woman doesn't even know what Jesus is going to do by dying and rising again. This woman has, like, she hasn't seen a, a, a miracle like feeding of 5,000. She's seen a miracle in her own life. She doesn't know all the theological jargon that she should say. She, she doesn't have an understanding of uh, what the Messiah is like and what he's going to do. She's barely out of her sin. She's like still living with the guy. Now she's encountered Jesus and the impression we get is that she's going to stop living with that guy. But I'm sure her clothes aren't out of the house yet. And yet she's like, I think I might have found the Messiah. And John says, many believed. And then the city of people, they come out to Jesus. She invites them. And Jesus starts talking to them. And John says, many more believed because of the words of Jesus. One of the greatest witnesses that we read of in the Bible is a woman who doesn't know much about the faith that she has just embraced, but she tells her story, and a town is revived because of it. Read another story in a devotional that I'm reading right now, and the story was about a woman who had gone, had just become a Christian. She was reluctantly went into a bar with some friends. She was a brand new Christian. Sits down. She starts talking to this guy who happens to be a rodeo cowboy. It's a weird part of the story. Has no real bearing on what happens next. They get to talking because she's interested in his line of work, as we all would be. And she says, I'm a new Christian. And this guy listens to her testimony. says, I want to know more about that. She's shocked. She takes him to somebody that she knows uh, that can explain the gospel better. He explains the gospel. The guy becomes a Christian, goes back, starts inviting other people to come and meet with this same person. And over time, there's like 50 people traveling to this church all together because this lady sat in a bar and said, I don't know much about Christianity, but I am a Christian now. And that can be you if you're willing to tell your story. I hope that you desire nothing more than in short time or long time for everybody you know to hear the story of Jesus and become a Christian. And I hope that you are willing not to defend yourself, but to declare your testimony, testifying to the reality of Jesus. Let me pray that that would be true. Lord, I just ask that we would be a church that witnesses. God, I pray that we would be a church that feels no need to defend ourselves, not as a church, not as individuals, but has every desire to testify to the work that you have done in our lives. Jesus, I pray that it's our heart's desire that everybody would know and worship you. And then, God, we'd go out and try to make it happen. I pray, God, that uh, as, as time goes, Lord, 
you'd bring these things back to our heads and, and just these words would be implanted in our soul, power encounter. And we're walking down the street and somebody's crying. We would not go, oh, I don't want to do anything. We'd go, this is a power encounter and I can share the gospel here. When we're talking to our friends and it's like, just remind us testimony and just let us just share our stories and how that story interacts with your story, Lord. God, show us people we can serve. Show us people, God, that just need to hear Jesus died and rose again, accept him. God, make us prophets that say, this is what God thinks about this. He came to die so that it might be better. Bring these things to our heads, Lord, and our hearts and even our souls. God, let us be a church that witnesses. And I pray, Lord, that short time or long time, every person that we love, every person that we're friends with, every person that we know, God, would become Christians. Work in us and through us, Lord. I pray these things in your name. Amen.